Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 19th, 2013. Yes, I have a cold and a sore throat. I'm going to try to work through it today. Apparently, I just don't have enough faith-filled words to create a positive, cold-free future. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, some people are blatant Bible twisters. Some people are more subtle in their Bible twisting. And and so you got to be on the alert. The idea here is is that don't even take my word for it. You know, if I'm telling you something that the Bible says, open up your Bible and see if that's what God's word really says in context. You can actually really truly do a good job of understanding God's word if you would just put it back in context. We've got a problem in the vast majority of uh, churches today, and that is is that people aren't actually preaching through texts. Um, they're ripping a verse out of context here, ripping another verse next, you know, and then sticking it with that verse, and uh, in you know, and weaving together their own false theologies. Yeah, the God's word wasn't meant to be read that way. In just the same way that uh, reading Tolkien's The uh, Lord of the Rings was never meant to be understood by you know you you know, starting somewhere in the two towers, randomly picking a sentence, and then going back into the Fellowship of the Ring and picking a sentence, and maybe you know being a purist here, you go back to the Hobbit and you know you ra- grab a sentence out of there, and then jump all the way over to the Return of the King and grab something from that, and then string it all together and. Flamo, you've got yourself uh, a good understanding of uh, the the story of the Lord of the Rings. No, nobody reads, nobody reads a book that way. Why would you read God's word that way? So, I mean, just something to keep in mind. Okay, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I will warn you today that today's episode doesn't have a central theme. There's something I'm trying to accomplish, but it doesn't really have a normal central theme. So 
uh, if you are one of those uh, listeners who enjoys trying to find the theme of uh, fighting for the faith, because I don't always, uh, you know, I don't always mention it. From time to time, I will mention it. Um, today's episode, it, it doesn't have a theme in the traditional sense. There's a goal, but it's not the same as a theme. So here's what we're going to do. We've got uh, three segments that we're going to take a look at in the first hour. First one we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to a recent video posted by William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. And apparently there's another 444 Bible prophecy that's a warning to America. And of course, you know, you listen to William Tapley and you wonder if God's really trying to warn America, don't you think he would be doing it in a way where more Americans would actually note the warning that they would see that it's a warning and uh, take heed as if it were a warning. I think he sees warnings where there are no warnings. I, he, <laughs> of course, you know, the old joke that is that, uh, you know, about, you know, kind of those prophecy ambulance chasers is that uh, they oftentimes will read their Bible with you know, a copy of the newspaper open. And William Tapley's the guy who's figured out how, you know, to prophetically find insight on the sports page, you know, which nobody has ever been able to accomplish before. So we have a William Tapley update. Uh, then we'll switch gears, and then we have a um, a Cindy Jacobs um, and Cindy and Mike Jacobs update. Uh, you know, on more on releasing provision, and uh, so we have uh, you know that n- new Apostolic Reformation update, and then we'll switch gears. We'll we'll take a break somewhere in there, you know, just depending on how the time falls. And again, I'm I'm trying to. preserve my voice a little bit because it's at the brink where it's like if I push it just a little too hard, then, you know, I may not have a voice for a couple of days. Um, Then we're going to switch gears and we're going to listen to a very subtle Bible twist, very subtle Bible twist um, by Jesse Duplantis. And uh, Jesse Duplantis is one of these uh, word of faith heretics. Um, And we're going to be listening to him talking about the uh, you know the the woman who Jesus called a dog the gentile woman who needed a healing uh and uh, you know for one of her children and you know and Jesus really doesn't uh, respond immediately and uh, Jesus ends up calling her a dog and so the name of the uh, the the message we're going to be listening to is entitled great expectation produces great faith which is fascinating because nowhere in the text is a talk about great expectation so a very subtle Bible twist by Jesse Duplantis, a man whom I convinced sounds a lot like Foghorn Leghorn of uh, of Looney Tunes fame. So, and then in hour number two, oh man, we will be going back to Montana to narrate church. I think they're in Helena, uh, Adam Hushka, and um. <laughs> I I don't know what it is, you know. It you know I, more and more I'm noting that certain pastors that I've critiqued in the past, you know, that I've reviewed their sermons here at Fighting for the Faith, uh, rather than uh, be dealt the charge of twisting God's word, have for the most part abandoned the endeavor altogether. And uh, the, oh man, this Adam Hushka sermon is it's about the dangers of multitasking. Yeah, no joke, no joke. I just I know some of you are saying what the dangers of what? Yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, he's he's gonna sit there and talk about for a long time about the evils. I mean, the flat out evils of multitasking. He's gonna try to somehow make it a biblical teaching by going to the book of Leviticus, and he fails miserably. And um, 
fascinating thing that we're seeing here uh, among certain seeker-driven guys is that um, some of them are abandoning even the pretense of actually doing any biblical teaching. I mean, my question for somebody like an Adam Hushka, you know, after listening to the sermon, you'll you'll get the, my, the, the point of my question, is have you forgotten how easy it is? It's really not hard. How easy it is to, you know, preach through a book of the Bible? You don't know, or preach through the whole thing? If you're really that hard up for material, Adam, I mean, what you could do is, you know, start at Genesis 1 and each week, you know, preach through two or three chapters until you get to the end of the book in a few years. You know, it's really that simple. And I guarantee you won't run out of material. But these guys, in their stubborn obstinacy, refuse to even do that. And you end up with sermons like what you're going to hear today in hour number two. <clears throat> Again, I'm trying to preserve my voice. So, you know, if I sound a little flat today, it's because I'm trying not to push it. I'm trying to, uh, you know, stay out of trouble, if you would. So, uh, we're with that. We're going to uh, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're going to start off with the William Tapley Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update, that requires us to do this. Again, I can't even sing well at the moment. That's very frustrating. Okay, so that's our uh, William Tavley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, update music, and apparently God is sending another 444 Bible prophecy warning to the United States of America, and the only person to have taken any note of the warning is William Tapley. Here's William Tapley to explain. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse, and the co-prophet of the end times. Now, does he sound like he's a little under the weather to you? I mean, maybe he has the same cold I'm suffering from. He, he sounds a little under the weather to me. I'm just, I just saying, you know, let's move along. Well, yesterday, Almighty God sent us another very terrifying warning. Terrifying warning. God himself sent us a terrifying warning. Did any of you know what that warning is? I mean, without me playing another second of this video were you terrified um a few days ago by a terrifying warning from almighty god yeah no i <laughs> i wasn't i didn't even notice it did you did you notice it i didn't notice it so if god's sending terrifying warnings don't you think that people would notice it and be terrified it just seems like you know maybe i'm being too logical here uh we continue Four people were killed in three separate accidents. 
out in California and Arizona. And that was another 444 warning to America. Hmm. Just a couple of weeks ago, maybe you remember, there was four mass killings. He sounds like he's under the weather to me. He sounds like he's on NyQuil. Affecting four families in four states in four days. None of this numerology is accidental. God is very angry that America is killing unborn babies. Now, I would definitely agree to a point with William Tapley that abortion is murder, flat-out murder. And the United States has murdered so many unborn children that the United States makes Hitler and the Nazis look like a bunch of preschool kids, you know, trying to earn their murder merit badge. Um, But, um, you know, that being said... um, Don't you think if God was really trying to send a message that he's angry at America for abortion, that he would have sent a clearer message that one where everybody in the United States who can read or, well, there's not a lot of people who do that anymore, uh, who can watch television and watch the news would go, oh my goodness, we've really upset God. Um. You looking at prophetic numerology that you're reading into uh, fatalities on the road in California and Arizona. I mean, people die on the road every day all across the United States. And he is especially angry at the Affordable Care Act, which will force Christians to pay for other people's abortions, contraceptions, and sterilizations. So so God is trying to send a message that he's really angry at Obamacare, too. <sighs> the only one who will benefit from the Affordable Care Act, as far as making a lot of money, is Planned Parenthood. And uh, maybe you understand that Margaret Sanger was one of the very few female precursors of the antichrist and what day did she die i i have no idea she died on september 6 66 again does he sound loopy to you he sounds loopy to me now normally he doesn't sound lucid i mean clearly i mean he still doesn't sound lucid but he actually i'm thinking he actually recorded this video under the influence of something that was not accidental And neither are these four deaths. And now let me read this article. These are all dated November the 13th. Officials say four Marines killed in accident at Camp Pendleton. And now here's the headline. If you want to read it, I got this right off the Internet. Yeah, officials say four Marines. Okay, so there's four Marines killed in accident at Camp Pendleton. Yeah, that's right off the Fox News website. Four U.S. Marines were killed Wednesday during a range maintenance operation at Camp Pendleton in California, the base said in a press release. And that's not the only incident. This is also dated yesterday, the Associated Press. Four Four dead, four injured in Northern California crash. Yeah, dated November 13, 2013. Yeah, wow, Uh uh-huh. And you you say this is part of a just terrifying warning from God about that he's upset about Obamacare and abortion. Four dead, four injured. Let me read this article, dated November thirteenth. As I said, Yuba City, California. 
A crash at a Northern California highway intersection left four men dead and four other people injured, authorities said. Now, this story is also dated November 13th. I'll let you read those headlines. Yeah, police four dead, including suspect after hostage situation in Phoenix. Yeah, four dead. Wow. Uh-huh. And what is this supposed to prove again? Police four dead, including suspect after hostage situation in Phoenix. A hostage situation ended tragically in Phoenix, Arizona, with four deaths, including the subject. It happened around 4 p.m. Gasp. I, I feel like we need to give him some kind of, like, really scary music here. And it happened around 4 p.m. And we all know that 4 p.m. with four people dying, that's, well, prophetic. We continue. How much more warning do you want from Almighty God? Now, God does not kill these people. That's either human error or human evil. Satan would like to kill all of us if he could. But God does allow these tragedies to wake us up. He allowed his own son to die for our benefit. So God's allowing these tragedies of people dying in fours on the same day in two two states. So we have the Marines having four dead in an accident. We got a car crash in California, four dead, four wounded. And then four people dying in another car crash in Phoenix. And, you know, and William Tapley is, like, berating us. Like, how many more of these things is it going to take for God, you know, before God finally gets your attention? <laughs> And like I said, he looks kind of loopy. He sounds kind of loopy. I'm thinking NyQuil here. Let me zoom in, see if his eyes are dilated. Let's continue. Why does God allow killings in the multiples of the number four in order to wake up America? Yeah. Um, Don't, again, kind of going back to the point that I've been making for a few minutes now is Don't you think if God were really trying to get our attention that he would do so in a much more obvious manner? I mean, you know, in in years past, God would actually raise up prophets and those prophets would go and prophesy. And um, some of them can actually perform miracles. I mean, and they got people's attention. Um, You're the only guy seeing this and you're not sounding exactly... um, at the top of your game at the moment here, but uh, let's continue. Because both America's and Barack Obama's number in Bible prophecy is 444. As I have explained many, many times on this program. In Daniel 11, according to the verse structure, 444 is followed by 666, which of course indicates the Antichrist. In Daniel 7, the leopard with four heads and four wings symbolizes both Obama and America. And the leopard... Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith has been brought to you by the number four, four, four. In, in, in our efforts to help God get the message out that he's really upset about Obamacare, we've decided to uh, make today's Fighting for the Faith officially sponsored by the number 444 and ask the question, how, much, how many more 
you know, killings of four people is God going to have to do in order to get your attention? It is followed by the fourth and final beast, which is, of course, the Antichrist. God has been warning America and the world for the last three years, since the fall of 2010, with millions of fish, bird, and animal die-offs, with blood in the water. Was it four million birds dying, four million fish? Did you count them? These are all end times plagues, but America has not woken up. How many deaths will it take? Because God is now allowing human beings to die. Will it take four million? (laughs) Okay, God is now allowing human beings to die. You are aware that, you know, traffic fatalities are like an everyday occurrence practically in every state in the United States. You are aware of this, right? And God's trying to send a message via, well, a a common everyday occurrence known as a traffic fatality. You know, I just, I'm not buying it. Killed in four cities from four nuclear bombs because God will allow that also. Until you realize that killing innocent babies is a horrible crime against humanity. And please don't forget to support my ministry if you... Yeah, no, no, no. Um, whew. You know, I do, you know, in a weird kind of way, support William Tapley by getting giving him what I would call audience magnification. Mm, but uh, financial support for him, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Okay, we are up on our first break, and when we come back, we have a Cindy and Mike Jacobs update about um, provision, and you know, and God multiplying stuff, and you know, and opening up a gate of financial whatevers. So don't want to miss that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Yeah, Cindy Jacobs, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Yeah, just up ahead is the path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. 
Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, 
Have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. <laughs> your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Oh. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, if God's going to warn people, his warning will actually not be ambiguous. It'll actually be like everyone will be shaking in their boots knowing it's a warning from God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508 
Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Chief, babe, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. An laboratory mice. The genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. The Twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, so that's our Mike and Cindy Jacobs update music. Uh, we also use that for anything having to do with the new apostolic reformation. It's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's definitely not a reformation, maybe a deformation. But um, we are, oh man, <clears throat> trying to think how to best phrase this. Of course, I'm a little bit distracted, my throat is killing me. Um, okay, this is from the God Knows Television, again, aptly named. And we're going to be listening to Mike and Cindy Jacobs talking about uh, releasing provision. Apparently, there's some major uh, Jewish numerical date thing and a prophecy that God apparently put on <laughs> Cindy Jacobs' heart to, that has something to do with releasing provision. And I guarantee what we're about to have released upon us is nonsense. That's basically what this has to do with. It's complete and utter nonsense. And why anybody who calls themselves a Christian would believe and listen to any of this nonsense is beyond me. But since they're really popular, uh, well, it behooves me to play this type of stuff here at Fighting for the Faith and compare what they're saying in the name of God to the Word of God. <clears throat> Brace yourselves. Here we go. Hi, welcome to God Knows. Today we are concluding a special series. It's been great. We believe God has a plan concerning every aspect of your life, and that includes your finances, especially during these turbulent economic times. Today we'll continue to discuss what we call the gate of wealth. And you know, Mike, we were... What we call the gate of wealth. Uh, who's we? You know, Christians are just you. And your husband, you call it the gate of wealth because I have never heard of such a thing in the Bible. But let's continue. About this, mm -hmm. it's interesting. You want to tell them like about the Jewish year and the symbolism. You're very good at that. Well, it's it's the year 5774 in the Hebraic calendar. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, or you may not know, that the numbers <laughs> numbers in in Hebrew mean something. Each individual mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. is a character and mm -hmm. it has its own meaning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it has multiple meanings. So mm -hmm. the thing that's interesting about 5770... Okay. Because <laughs> I'm not feeling well, that's just going to absolutely... It's, it's starting to bug. You're sitting there going... Sorry, I'm being petty. It's just, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling... And when you're not feeling well, certain things just bug you that normally don't. I mean, just her sitting there affirming her husband in this nonsense is grating on me. Or the four in it uh, is... A character that means or can be translated as the door mm -hmm. or the oh. gate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the prophetic words that have been coming out. I am so not going to make it very far through this. 
that you gave a very powerful prophetic word about this, that this is the year or a season of the gate or door of wealth. And this is a word that's really living in me from Isaiah 60. So there's a word, a prophetic word that's really living in you from Isaiah 60. I don't think Isaiah 60 has anything to do with right now and wealth gates. But let's see what she does with this. How much you want to bet she's going to rip a verse out of context and have no clue what it actually means. Anyone want to take that wager? 11, therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or... Okay, now I got to back this up so you can hear it in context. She begins with Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11 from the New King James Version. And that verse begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. That means that there's other stuff going on that precedes this. That will tell us the context. You can't just take Isaiah 60 verse 11 and rip it out of context and begin with a therefore, because my question is, what's the therefore, therefore? It's not there for us to talk about wealth gates, but let me back this up so that you can hear what she's doing here. It's typical Bible twisting from a false, self-confessed false prophet. Living in me from Isaiah 60, 11, therefore your gates shall be open continually, they shall not be shut day or night. Why? That men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. But you know, one of the things that's so... Okay, now we've got to do a little bit of work here. Isaiah chapter 60, let's take a look at the context, see if we can figure out what on earth is going on. Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Uh, The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All of the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaioth, shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves in their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Now this just on the surface, without really knowing the full context, this sounds to me like it has some eschatological significance, okay? You know, where all the nations are coming to, because of the Holy One of Israel? Hmm, you see what I'm saying here? So foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Now here's verse 11. Your gates, therefore, shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring you to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. 
For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel." Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of the nations and shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Yeah, um, the you there isn't talking about me or you. Uh, the you there is actually talking about Israel. And Israel... I would even argue again. I you know having not done anything except for look at the context. There's some eschatological significance going on here, and she's just ripped this verse out of context. Let's see if she can make any sense of it because she just starts with a therefore at uh, at verse eleven and verse sixty. Let's see what she if what she can figure out with this text. Exciting about that, Cindy. This is not a word for. The United States, yeah. or a word solely for yeah. South America. It's a kingdom oh, word. It is a kingdom word. It is a season word. Mm-hmm. This is a word I think you'll find God's releasing throughout the mm-hmm. entire earth for the season. This is an amazing word. Yeah, and you know... Why on earth should I believe that this is a word that God is releasing through all the nations right now for a season? This doesn't make any sense. thing is, you know, I was meeting recently with our prayer network here, our generals for the 50 states in the United States, and I'm listening to them, and they're telling me, oh, I'm going through such a hard time financially. Things have been so difficult. I mean, these people that have uh, last year alone just did massive prayer efforts, Mm -hmm. and, and we're so grateful to them. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, something is wrong. Mm. You know, this word says the gate shall be open continually. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. There's something wrong. This word that God laid on my heart from Isaiah 60 verse 11 says that the gates of wealth will be open continually. And, and the people I know aren't experiencing continual wealth. There's something wrong. Yes, Cindy, there is something wrong. You have no clue what that passage is about, and you are utterly misapplying it and completely blind to what it really actually is saying. The something that is wrong is that Isaiah 60 doesn't promise Christians continual wealth gate openage. <laughs> In other words, it shouldn't shut. There should be provision that's a continual flow. Yeah. And then I thought, wait, wait, another thing is that that if that's so... How do we get them open? In other words, how do we transfer wealth? Yeah. How do you... <laughs> blind leading the blind and both end up in a pit together. Yeah, so, yeah, since the gates are constantly supposed to be open, this wealth is... How do we open it, you know, and, experiencing, and experience wealth transfer? This passage isn't saying that! Lock the door. How do you... Words. Yeah, how do you keep the door open? Well, one of the things that's important is that it's, it's one thing to get a word, Cindy, that, but there are strategies to open doors. If mm-hmm. God says this is a year or <laughs> six. <laughs> really? There's, I mean, there, oh, man, there's strategies to open doors. 
I haven't even thought about that before, you know, because, you know, some doors, they just open automatically. You know, they have that little sensor thing. You walk up to it, does the Star Trek thing, you know, and it opens up. Other doors, they have knobs. And so you have to use a different strategy to open up the doors that have knobs. And then some doors have handles. And you have to employ a completely different door opening strategy in order to open a door with handles. <laughs> of the door of wealth or the gate of wealth it's not it's pointless if you can't open the door you know so and the lord wants us to be able to open the door that's why this also would have to be a season of revelation because you need to know what key do i use that unlocks the door oh see yes yeah, so your door opening strategy also must consider what key which key do you have <laughs> So I got to go find that guy from Ghostbusters, you know, the, the key master, right? Oh, man. And a good example of this, a very good example of this is one of the strategies that God uses is the anointing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we... Uh-huh. So, so one of the... So you, you got to pick out the right key and then use the anointing strategy in, <laughs> in order to open the door. Ah. <sighs> Why do I feel like the door of God's word and what it actually means is shut to their minds? Situation where I was in a developing nation and my translator uh, was also a business consultant and he went to a, a company that he was consulting for and uh, they had a problem. Their radio system wasn't working and they needed to communicate with truck drivers to get their, their job done. And so... Uh, I'm, I'm almost sinning. Shall we say, stay tuned for what I God's going to tell I you about you, this? Yeah, I this, think, there's such a good story. I don't want to miss it. But. Yeah, I, I'm watching you like, because we have a guest coming out. Yeah, you know, I don't want to mess up the guest. Okay, okay. Uh, let, we want to introduce someone very special to you. Yeah, I don't need to hear any more. I mean, completely clueless as to what Scripture actually says and teaches and they can't even figure out how to make sense of their own so-called prophetic revelation because you got to employ a strategy, and one of the strategies could be an anointing. But then you got to apply the right key so that you can open the wealth door. And God's Word doesn't teach any of this. This has nothing to do with Christ and Him crucified for our sins. This has absolutely nothing in common with sound biblical doctrine. This is just complete and utter nonsense from the devil to distract you and keep you out of your Bible so that you don't understand what it says, what it means, so that you will not trust in Christ and therefore be saved. Truly sad and tragic. Moving along. That's right. It's time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El Dinero. Wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels. Give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit? That's made out of oof and whistle for wearing a green. I got that monetary itis like me, just like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. 
greenback collector. I'm a paper bill inspector. I'm a savage for that cabbage man. To me, it's golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me. Spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I want to be the guy that they send out to prove That's Dr. Teeth and money, money, money. Okay, what we're going to be listening to here is uh, audio from a message by Jesse Duplantis entitled, Great Expectation Produces Great Faith and Great Results. So apparently, um, the, the important thing, if you want to have great results from your faith, you know, like money and things like that, uh, and you want to learn how to dream the impossible and actually have the impossible come to pass in your life, well, it's going to happen through you seeing your destiny achieved by having great expectations. <clears throat> yeah, here's uh, Jesse to plant us to explain. The title of the sermon this morning is Great Expectation Produces Great Faith and Great Results. I kind of got this message or the title of it. The other day I was sitting there and I noticed something that pregnant women do. Especially when we're getting close to their time of delivery. You got this message by watching pregnant women? Huh? They rub their stomach a lot. They can be sitting there and they're rubbing that stomach. I don't know if it itches. I don't know what it is or maybe just wanting to touch the baby or whatever. And I, and I watched that, and I'm gonna deal, this is one of the points of the mess. I'm going to deal with it a little later. And it hit me. Faith is the womb where revelation takes its first breath. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> so faith is the womb where revelation takes its first breath. That is literally as nonsensical as the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. I mean, it sounds so, you know, religious, right? You know, faith is the womb where revelation takes its first breath. And then you start to kind of work the sentence out and you realize, yeah, that doesn't, not only does that not make any sense, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything as absurd as this. And I looked at that. And I remember when O'Reilly was pregnant, uh, you know, for Catherine, she would rub her stomach a lot. I don't remember Kathy rubbing her stomach, but that's been so long ago, you know, I don't, I don't remember. I wasn't saved in those days. But I was, and I find most of them just kind of do that. Because you see, harvest is coming. And when you expect, you deliver. You birth. Uh, <clears throat> so when you expect, you deliver, you birth. This is just a play on words, and none of it actually makes any semantic sense. I can't wait to see what he's going to do with the biblical passage with the start off like this. I want you to see this woman here, and I'm going to do a little teaching this morning to kind of break this thing, and we'll go with it from here. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan. Now notice this. She's not in the flock. She's not an Israelite. Jesus did not come for anybody else than the household of Israel at that time. Came out of the same, but did she have a faith womb? Same coast and cried to them, saying, "Have mercy on me, O Lord." She calls him Lord and asks for mercy. Thou son of David. So she recognizes his lineage 
as a king. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She has a daughter that is demon-possessed. Jesus, under direction from God, because you see what God says you, you do, he says he answered her not a word, which people think is rude. But no, see, Jesus is line upon line, precept upon precept. He's a word person, you could call him that. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, now notice this, send her away, for she crieth after us. In other words, she figured the people that work for him ought to have the same power as him. Especially if you're hanging around him. You ought to be able to manifest or do what your leader says. Hmm. Because Jesus is that perfect example. Now, here's a woman. <clears throat> yeah. Um, have I noted the fact that uh, I'm convinced that Jesse Duplantis is related to Foghorn Leghorn? Yeah. L- listen to this and see if you see any uh, similarities. Here we go. Tramping through the woods. I'm a chicken. Rooster lot is. Don't give me that. You're not a chicken. What am I then, boy? You're a loudmouth snook. Look at here, son. I'm no loudmouth snook. This is a dog, not a chicken. Chickens don't look like dogs. Who told you this was a chicken, son? Nice boy, but doesn't listen to a word you say. <laughs> yeah, just saying, you know, Jesse Duplantis reminds me of Foghorn Leghorn. <clears throat> Not that this has anything to do with his Bible twisting, because if you can't tell that he's twisting the Bible, uh, then you're you're already caught in the tractor beam of his uh, heretical spell. But we continue. That's not a church woman. She just got a girl that's hurting. She, she's a mama, and she don't want to see her daughter grievously vexed. So she says, I need some mercy. You're the son of David. Help me. Notice this. But he answered and said, very truthful, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, most people would have quit right there. They would have said, who do you think you are? I'm asking for prayer. You turning me down. But this woman had something in her called great expectation. And of her great, yeah. If, if she had great expectation inside of her, um, wouldn't the biblical text actually say that? Yeah, I don't recall any of the church fathers ever t- commending her about her great expectation. Jesus actually didn't commend her for her great expectation either, as you will see in just a second here. He'll actually read the text, and we'll see what Jesus commends her for. Is it her faith or her great expectation? Great expectation. Her great faith was starting to come. Now, you can have both of those, but if you don't get great results, it doesn't help you too much, does it? Look, Yeah, you got to get great results. So you know, if you have, it doesn't matter if you have great faith. You got to have great expectation that births in the womb of the revelation thingy, the, <clears throat> the faith <laughs> for the results. <sighs> Man, it, it is just absolutely just beyond me why anybody thinks that this is biblical. What she said. 
Then came she and worshipped him. Most people would not do that. They would be mad and angry. But she worshipped him saying, Lord, still calling him Lord, help me. But he answered and said, he tells her again that he is bound by this. It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, when's the last time a preacher called you a dog? Would you still like him? Okay, a pig. That'd be worse, wouldn't it? Because you see, according to Israel's history at the time, everybody else was dog, buddy. But you see, she was wanting something, not needing something. See, when you want something hard enough, you go beyond that need trash. Uh, What on earth are you talking about? When you go beyond the, you know, when you really want something, you go beyond the need trash. She didn't need it. She wanted it. What? You become violent with your faith. Look what she says. And she said, she could have said, what? What? She said, truth. In other words, I know who I am, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now that's great expectation. Now, out of that great expectation, great faith is produced. That there isn't a single passage in the Bible that says out of great expectation, great faith is produced. You're just making that up. She shocks Jesus. He says, woman, great is thy faith. When's the last time God told you that? Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. In other words, I ain't got to come over and pray. I don't have to go over there and lay hands on her. Your faith, girl, is going to make this happen. Uh, Yeah, notice he commends her faith, not her great expectation. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Great faith, great expectation. Great faith, great results. Working together. That you don't have to actually be in church. It's nice to have the pastor come over or someone or, or you know, your, 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 you know, your leader or whatever. But my God, there's something in you greater than anything around you. Oh, wow. Um, by the way, faith always has an object. And the object of this woman's faith was Jesus. Now, notice what Jesse Duplantis has done by adding the expectation part that produces faith, apparently. He's talking about the great thing inside of you instead of telling you about your great Jesus. And that's the problem. He's got you focused on you rather than on Christ. Oh, look at that great faith. This is faith in faith, not faith in Christ. Write this down. Great expectation is a link in the chain of God's design. He created man to expect. He created woman to expect, or in other words, to birth. His primary law of everything he does is sowing and reaping. It's in the human kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. And the financial, it's everywhere. And the financial kingdom, of course. And sowing and reaping. If you want money, you better start sowing money. Sowing and reaping. The church is known only of sowing. Thought reaping was greed when it was actually growth. 
See, but they tried to get their growth by their own hand and it didn't work. You've got to trust God, your great expectation. People look at me and say, boy, you believe the unbelievable and receive the impossible. That's great expectation. Yeah, see, now, don't you want to reap the impossible and you want to start reaping that growth financially? Well, you better start sowing some money into Jesse Duplantis's ministry. That's the whole point. This is the theological Ponzi scheme. The pre, you know, he tries to create the pretense that what he's preaching is actually biblical, but the whole time it's it's just a twisting of God's word designed to create a message that makes you believe that oh yeah, there's great you you can expect great things that have great results in your life you know great things like money you want money don't you you want great financial expectations reaping that's not see that's not greed that's just growth uh-huh you want that to happen to you right well if you want that to happen to you then the thing you need to do is sow money into Jesse Duplantis's ministry and then God will give you money and that's how that all works twisting of God's word in order to make merchandise of you. And that's what that's all about. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Heading back to Montana to hear an Adam Hushka sermon. Seriously, talking about... How you may be duped regarding multitasking. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted 
It's a Star Trek uniform, but it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. This is going to uh, be another example of a um, seeker-driven church planter type who's, I, I mean, at this point, looks like completely given up. I mean, it, it's as if, you know, I don't, he doesn't even want to give the pretense anymore that he's even trying to do a biblical sermon. Yeah. But let's do this right. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's (laughs) sermon? I don't know what this is. Comes to us via... Narrate Church, Helena, Montana, Adam Hushka presiding. The sermon series is entitled Alone Together. The name of the sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled The Myth of Multitasking. (laughs) It is going to be a long, long time into the sermon before you are going to hear it even anything that remotely resembles a biblical text. And I'm convinced that he decided to go off on teaching about the myth of multitasking and how multitasking may not really be a a positive thing. It may actually be a bad thing, you know. Um, And I'm sure he got really far into his sermon and thought, whoa, I better throw in a biblical verse into this thing. But I mean, this is what it sounds like when a pastor has completely abdicated his biblical, God-given duty to preach the word. I mean, when I don't even know what else to say about this thing except for you are in for a an unpleasant surprise. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is Adam Hushka, Narrate Church, Helena, Montana, and the myth of multitasking. Here we go. Hey, everybody. This is Caleb, part of the Narrate team. When you hear the word multitasking, what comes to mind? Is it a word that best describes you and how you have to multitask to get everything done that you need to get done? What if multitasking is a myth? This week, Adam explains multitasking and its implications in a series called Alone Together. (laughs) What if multitasking is a myth? Oh, no. (laughs) 
what is this? Ha- what if the whole idea about preaching about multitasking is a myth when it's as far as Christian doctrine? Christian doctrine has nothing to do with multitasking. So if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm just going to warn you, it's not going to feel a lot like church, and you'll have to decide whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but in keeping even with one of those songs that we sang when we were just kind of echoing, uh, we, we just want to love you, we just want to love you. What we decided to do months ago and what we kicked off last weekend was to, to make the decision that in our culture, in our day, that to, to do that, to, to, to love God the way that so many of us uh, seek uh, to love God, it, it requires a conversation about our technology and our devices, and hopefully you can relate to that scenario. I appreciate that at least now I have a vocabulary. When I'm just with people and now, I just say like, oh, good, so we're alone together. This is awesome. Uh, if you're if you're not a Christ follower, if you're here uh, because she's here, you're here because you heard that it might be challenging and helpful even if you don't follow Jesus, uh, I think the same is true for you. I think there's going to be some good data in here because I, I think... Where we're going this morning is to ask this question, do you, ever, do you ever just feel sick and tired of of not getting to put forth your best effort? Like, did you ever notice how many different areas in life that you have to win at? Like, uh, that, that you have to win in so many different areas. Did you ever just feel yourself frustrated, exhausted, angry? Annoyed at really the only thing you can do in every area, work, home, uh, relationships, all those different things, that really the only thing you can do is, um, dare I say, half-ass everything? You ever feel that way? Now, I I don't use that phrase for any type of reaction from you, but just this week and over... I'm convinced it's a perfectly legit phrase to describe what you did with the sermon because you did that as far as your responsibility to actually preach the word. But then again, I know how the sermon ends. Let's continue. Dustin prepared for this weekend. I just, I couldn't think of a better phrase that captures the angst that I so often feel because I recognize that I'm constantly running from one thing to another and there's all these different areas where I want to win. And what happens to me is I, I live in this perpetual sense that I don't ever get to give my best to anything. Kind of like when you were in college, you know, and you thought, man, if the only thing I had to take was history, I could do so well. And then you get out of college and you realize, like, okay, in life, you don't just have five classes. You've got hundreds of relationships and lots of responsibilities. And there's your work life and there's your spiritual life and there's your health life and there's your financial life. And then there's your wife life or your husband life and your kid life. Do you ever just feel like you're set up to fail? That you can't possibly win in all the ways you need to win? Like, I I don't know all of you. But I know the personality of this place. I know the type of people that gravitate to this movement. And I know that you're the types of people who are busy and you like to win. You don't like mediocre. You don't like C minus. You don't like average. You don't like, last time I'll say it, half ass. Like, like you like full effort. You like excellence. You like walking away with the satisfaction that, yeah, there's always room that you could do it better. But this time you got real close. And so this morning, as is, is odd as it's going to sound, and it's going to sound more like a, a, a workshop at the beginning, but you'll just have to be patient with me because we are going to turn a corner. This morning, I feel like to really deal with that sentiment, what we have to do is talk about something that we would most commonly know as multitasking. And if you weren't with us last week, I would highly... Do you go to seminary to learn about this? Do you have to know Greek or Hebrew? Would you have had to study systematic theology, apologetics, homiletics or hermeneutics in order to get this next part of this, quote, sermon. You know. Listen to the podcast, not because it's very good, but because it is definitely the setup to this weekend. 
But I feel like we just have to like, tear back the assumptions that we have about multitasking and, and ask some really hard questions. And let me just tell you on the front. Yeah, we're going to ask some tough questions about multitasking. I, I think it's about time this happened in the church. Not. At the risk of being too dramatic, here's the danger of this morning. Uh, the, the danger is that you'll agree on almost every point. And you'll hear the science and you'll hear the research and you'll even hear the scripture and you'll, yep, 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 yep. The danger is, not that it's unique to this morning, but, but I do think that it's heightened to this morning. The, the danger is that, that you'll agree with it and then next week you'll still be doing the same thing. Because at the end of the day, our devices and our technology and... Does God think I'm sinning if I'm multitasking? Responsibilities they have, were, they're, they're overwhelming. And so as I'm going to pray at the end, but I'll say now, this working through this stuff is going to take a lot of wisdom and a lot of courage. And I think it's going to take wisdom uh, t- to know exactly what to do with all of this. Courage. Yeah, it's, okay. By the way, a spoiler alert here. He's going to come out against multitasking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to claim that it's a terrible thing. So um, that being the case, I mean, he said it's gonna, what, what really needs to happen is going to take courage. So somebody somewhere is going to hear this sermon, and they're, and they're going to take a bold stand. They're going to say, I have made the decision to boldly and courageously stand against multitasking. And, um, and then people are going to go, oh, you are so godly. You're so much like Jesus. Uh, can I pray the sinner's prayer now? Is that what they're going to do? Again, this has nothing to do with Christianity. Absolutely zero. Okay? One of the ways I describe it to people is this way, is that there are a lot of truths, a lot of truths in the world. For instance, okay, open up a astrophysics textbook, okay, and there's... It's just filled to the brim with truth. You can learn about the, the you know, the the equation, you know, it, Einstein's law of relativity equals mc squared. That's truth, right? You can learn about quarks and quasars and galaxies and black holes and super-de-duper big black holes that are in the middle of galaxies. You can learn all about all of that stuff, and it's true. And that's not what Christian pastors are called to preach on Sunday. They're not called to preach, you know, proper math. They're not called to preach geometry theorems. They're not called to preach uh, proper techniques for putting seed into the grounds to help farmers yield a better harvest. Although all of that may be true. The truth that, that that Christian pastors are called to preach and proclaim is God's word in context. Preach the word in season and out of season. What we're going to hear from Adam Hushka literally sounds like a man who's completely and utterly abandoned. And pro- I would even say consciously his duty, God-given duty to preach the word. But we continue to do things that might cause you to look really odd and may even cause you to miss, miss out on things. So let, let me ask you this. Uh, what if multitasking is a myth? 
Like, I don't mean spiritually speaking. I don't even mean like it's unwise. I mean, what if the entire scientific notion behind multitasking is completely and utterly false? Like, what if your brain is made in such a way, not according to scripture, though I think that's important and it affirms some of these things, but according to neuroscientists, what if your brain is made to single task? What if it is made to be able to push all the distractions out and focus in on one thing? Like, what if that creativity you aspire to, that productivity you aspire to? And the irony here is that Adam Hushka in the truest sense of the word, is multitasking. Let me let me explain, okay? So multitasking equal bad, right? Uh, single tasking, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. Single tasking equal good, right? Now remember, he's a Christian pastor, okay? So the one thing, and I mean one thing, that he must really be good at, okay? Now there's many things that... Pastors are supposed to be good, but let's key in on one of them, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Not just preach, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, what uh, Adam Hushka is doing here, he's not preaching the word. No, he's not. So according to the biblical standard for his job, the thing he's supposed to really be good at is preaching the word. He's actually guilty at this moment of multitasking because he's completely off topic. He's not preaching the word. He's preaching the dangers of multitasking. Excellence that you want. What if it actually requires you do something that's not unique to our age, but is a challenge for every people in every millennia, and that is learn to single task one thing at a time. Now, let me just be honest. I I have not arrived. I was hanging out with some friends yesterday, and you may have known that the Cardinals were playing in a playoff game, and my kids were carving pumpkins with their kids, and I might have set my cell phone on a shelf, and I might have hit hit GameCast so I could watch the Cardinal game, because after all, it was one to nothing in the bottom of the seventh inning. We were about to beat Clayton Kershaw, like, woo! And my friend finally said to me, so uh, how's that technology thing going for you? (laughs) So I've not arrived. If that wasn't enough irony, last service, I was standing up here and my butt was vibrating. Turns out there was a device inside. Oh, jeez. Turns out there was a phone in my back pocket. It was my wife trying to FaceTime me from Ecuador. I denied. So, so I've not arrived. But when you hear multitasking, what, what, do, you, what do you think of? Uh, do, do you maybe uh, think of that male versus female thing, right? Because that's what we've been told, especially once we get married, is women can, men can't. And many of us, the, the evidence that we submit is those images we have of our wives driving the van down four-lane traffic, listening to the radio and going through red and green lights and somehow giving a bottle to a kid in the back seat and then handing pretzels to the one in the third seat. And, and that just affirms for many of us what we were told is that women can multitask and men can't. You ever been there? And dudes are like, this is exactly why my wife doesn't drive. 
Does anybody else, by the way, have the habit of saying her whenever a driver makes a bad decision and they're anonymous? <laughs> My wife loves to point out when it's not a her. And then I just say, well, see, they're old. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I digress. Maybe you think of uh, just productivity, because I think that's really what multitasking is all about, right? It's, it, it, it assumes that you have more to do than you have minutes in the day, and thus the way to get them done is to do two things at once, which means that probably you, if I gave you enough time, you would start thinking of technology. Because as you contemplate this and spend time on this, what you'll realize is the reason they can get you to convince you that you need the new computer, the reason they can convince you that, that you need the 5S even though the 5 is working great is because the, 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 the pull is it'll help you more effectively multitask, which is hilarious because it, it assumes that multitasking even works in the first place, let alone that it'll actually do so more effectively. If you think of technology, maybe here, here's this, this kind of funny commercial that I saw with regard to Windows 8. Did you know there were still Windows? I, I didn't even know. There's, here, here's a commercial. So he's now playing a Japanese-language commercial for Windows 8 as part of his sermon on the myth of multitasking. Asians are so talented. <laughs> I said that last gathering, and my friend Steve, who's Asian, came up to me afterwards. He's like, I got to tell you a joke. So, can I tell you a joke? Um, he, he, he said that an Asian is sitting at a bar and having, having a beverage, and another man comes up to him and says, Hey, do you know Taekwondo? No. Do you know judo? No. And by that point, he's offended. Like, how dare you assume that about me because I'm Asian in descent? Like, how dare you? Why are you saying those things? And, and he said, Because you're drinking my beer. Uh, good one, isn't it? Okay. Uh, Mark Twain is purported to have said that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Welcome to Narrate, by the way, the weekend where we cuss. Um, uh, uh, Dan Crenshaw, who I'm indebted to for the research this morning, he says that in the 21st century, maybe a more appropriate version of that ism is that there are lies, damn lies, and multitasking. See, the idea is, is uh, multitasking is such a way of life for us because we assume it's even real. But what if it's not? Uh, and in order to kind of demonstrate that it's not, I want to do a couple of things. First of all, we have the definition. I, I brought a dictionary, but Caleb was like, what is that, a study Bible? It's like, no, they, they used to make them in paper, and you would like... <laughs> You would open them up and you would like look things up and you would go like MLT, multitasking. Uh, computers is the noun, the concurrent execution of two or more jobs by a single CPU. Uh, those who understand computers and CPUs, what they'll tell you is what Wikipedia does with the definition. So see, you can use it as a research device, is, is that we should put the word apparent in front of that. 
that it's actually the apparent concurrent execution of two or more jobs because people who understand these things understand that a single CPU, right, Brad? I should have talked to you first to just put him on the spot, but hey, uh, that, that CPUs, they can't actually do two things at once. Sure, your computer can if it has multiple CPUs, but that's the equivalent of having two brains. And I don't know about you, I have a quarter of a brain, not two brains. That in fact, though, multitasking is born out of the technology realm and what it assumes is you can do two things at once and you can do so effectively. So let me just uh, do something that feels like elementary school but does make a point. Will you grab that card in front of you? Uh, This is an all skate, everybody skate. Kind of like junior high, right? And we're going to play four corners and if you get to the wrong corner, you're out. Um, So I've got 27 characters on, on the screen up here. It says multitasking is worse than a lie. I want you to multitask in that top row. Here's what I want you to do. Is you're going to write out multitasking is worse than a lie, and then 1 to 27, 1, 2, 3, 4, simultaneously. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to write M, and then 1, and then U, and then 2. And don't look at the screen, or else we're going to take away your honest card. So... You see, so M, 1, U, 2, and you're... So we're going to do an experiment with multitasking to see if you can multitask and, and show that you can't. Oh, this is going to change the world, man. I'm telling you, the planet will never be the same after this. And it's going to take you forever, and I'll be back after we're done with this annoying song. All right, so he, had, he plays the Jeopardy music while they're doing that. I'll fast-forward the audio so that we can skip through that to when they're completed with their little multitasking test, if you would. That, that's clinical, what you just did. How are you doing? Are you even close? Okay, so now I want you to switch, and on that bottom row, just, just single task, right? Multitasking is worse than a lie, and then write one out, 1 to 27. Ready? Go. All right, so everyone gets to do it now. Single tasking, which is, oh, it's just, I'm telling you, I mean, I can feel people being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're hearing about sound biblical doctrine. They're learning about the nature of God and the Trinity. Oh, it's it's so good, clear soteriology. Okay, that's, that's, that's good. <clears throat> yeah, we continue, though. So Nancy Reagan had, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and I present to you, this is your brain, this is your brain on multitasking. Uh, you probably already noticed some of the obvious things, like the number of errors and the difficulty and the time involved. And in fact, that's not a silly thing that I came up with. That, that's a, a, a clinical illustration, if you will, of what happens when you try to multitask. Now, some of you, let me just kind of go here before your brain uh, distracts itself on this. There, there's something else called background tasking. And where we confuse background tasking for multitasking is in background tasking, it's when one, uh, one thing that you do doesn't require any conscious energy. So like men can do this when they drive. Ah, you guys didn't even laugh. I thought that was really good. Um, it's like the ability to, to run and listen to music, the ability to enter data into your computer and listen to music, those types of things. There, there's a difference. Listen to the way this uh, neuropsychologist said it. He said the brain is a lot like a computer. You may have several screens open on your desktop, but you're able to think about only one thing at a time. What if? What if you can't? And what if all those times when you tell yourself yourself you can, you're actually cheapening the product? You're actually... Jesus himself said to go and make disciples of all nations. How does this fulfill that task? Teaching about multitasking. How does this fulfill the task of making disciples? Answer, it doesn't. 
less than your best. Uh, here's something that there's other clinical evidence that says that multitasking is to your brain what Snickers or Pepsi is to your stomach. That it's satiating in the moment. Uh, that's the wrong word, isn't it? It's satisfying in the moment. Like instantly you love it. But long term, you wish you wouldn't have. Literally, they say people, people who multitask at work get home from work far less satisfied and fulfilled than people who don't multitask at work. They single task. So in the moment, the multitaskers have... And you do know that people who do not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that at the end of their life, they spend eternity in hell, right? I mean, who cares if whether or not at the end of the day, they're more satisfied with their work due to the fact that they were either multitasking or not multitasking. That has, that's not important. We're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to make disciples. Who cares what, whether or not people are satisfied with their, more satisfied because they didn't have to multitask? Who cares? You're a, a Christian pastor. You're supposed to preach the word and proclaim Christ. When the day is over, the single taskers are much more satisfied and fulfilled. Well, one more just a bit of statistics. Trust me, I recognize the irony. But let's just jump into the business world. Like the, the, the business world of, the, the, and I realize that some of you, this is different. Some of you, you're students. Some of you, your business world is an eight to five in a cubicle. You work in trades or uh, you, you work after hours or you work in, you're a teacher or you work in medicine, something along those lines. So I, I recognize that this may involve some jump roping in, in order to apply it to yourself, but just kind of go with me. If you work in that more traditional sense, how many times an hour do you suppose the average American office worker gets interrupted? Six, they say, is the, the, the average. That, that the average office cubicle type of person has three colleague interruptions an hour. Some of you are going like, where do they work? I want to work there. <laughs> uh, that they, get, they check their email twice and that they take or make one phone call or send or receive one text message an hour and all the teens are out. Uh, the one an hour thing. If you do the math... Even if, from a conservative standpoint, that's an interruption every 10 minutes. And in fact, uh, one study uh, conducted in the, by the University of California says this, 11, the average number of minutes an employee can devote to a project before being interrupted. Now, if you were the boss, and it was your money, and you uh, were the one that it was, it was your income that was being invested, how would you feel about that? 11 minutes. In fact, how do you think Jesus feels about the fact that on his time, because church belongs to him, on Jesus's time, you're talking about multitasking rather than preaching Jesus? How do you think Jesus feels about that? That the average American worker is unproductive because of multitasking related interruptions 28% of the day. That, that's, if, if, if a workday for you is eight hours, that means that, that you're unproductive for, for greater than two hours a day. And some of you are going like, yeah, so what's the big deal with that? Uh, from a financial standpoint, those of you that like numbers and economics and things like that, that translates to $650 billion annually that are lost in the U.S. economy because of the habit of multitasking. The most common forms of interruption, you ask? Okay, we've got them. Here they go. Number one is a colleague stopping by. Number two is being called away from or leaving your desk voluntarily. Number three is the arrival of a new email. Bing. Uh, number four is switching to another task on the computer. Number five is a phone call. So you see, 
That 28%, it doesn't even... Number one, is a pastor preaching about multitasking rather than preaching about Christ. Number two, is a pastor who rips verses out of context and never correctly handles God's word. Number three, is a pastor who preaches a false gospel. Notice a different list here with different priorities? Yeah. Notice that you're fitting on that list, Adam. That you're always going off task or even that you're doing something like looking at your Facebook page even when you're staying productive so to speak. You're actually unproductive. What if? Like this sermon. Although he's productive in teaching us about the dangers of multitasking, he's unproductive in actually teaching us anything about what God's Word says. Therefore, he's not doing the task that he's been given to make disciples. And that task was given to him by Jesus. thing is a myth. In economics, there's something called switching cost. It's the, it's the financial cost of switching. Say, uh, you go through this when you go, am I going to go from a flip phone to a smartphone? There, there's, a, there's a cost associated. There's a, there's a time cost. The learning curve is the phrase that we often use. Or if you're going to move to a new community or take a new job or something along those lines, there's always a switching cost. It's, you don't use that phrase, but it just captures the idea that you know that you're going to waste a whole lot of time learning the new device. The switching cost of multitasking, the switching cost of, of moving from, I'm in this project, I'm creative, I'm flowing, I'm, I'm doing this thing, I'm doing whatever I'm supposed to do, I'm in this conversation, I'm engrossed in whatever I'm supposed to be, boom, I just heard my phone. The cost, they say, of a three-minute interruption can be as much as 20 minutes of productivity. Now listen, I, I, I do this, and I'm guessing you do too. I'm, I'm, I'm in the groove. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I have that random thought of, oh yeah, I wanted to check on my fantasy football team. I'll just look real quick. See, what they're saying is that task might take you two minutes, but your brain, if you picture it like a gear, to to get wound back up to the spot that it was at before can take as many as 20 minutes. Henry Cloud uh, did a study, and he said a three-minute interruption from the task at hand results in a net loss of up to 20 minutes of productivity. He goes on to say he's done a lot of brain science research recently, and, and kind of his summary statement of his research is simply this. As far as brain science is concerned, multitasking is a joke. See, this is the part where it's really easy to go, yeah, 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 I, I agree, but, but hard to change. Now, if you're someone that is, is here because you want to be engaged and challenged and, and you appreciate the fact that you don't have to follow Jesus to, to leave having had a good experience, then there's lots of stuff there. But if you're someone that wakes up in the morning and, and the echo of your heart is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like if you're someone that identifies yourself as a Christ follower, if you are someone who, who seeks to live and for and follow him, I think there's way more at stake. Now we're going to jump into the book of Leviticus. Okay, so we are literally at, we're beyond the halfway point of this sermon. So finally we're going to jump into the book, wait a second, Leviticus? Um, where in Leviticus does it talk about multitasking? Answer, it doesn't. Not one passage, not one scripture, not one word has anything to do with the dangers of multitasking. So what we're going to get here is not a sound exegesis of the biblical text in Leviticus. But we continue. <laughs> for I was challenged. Just kidding. Um, but for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, the book of Levit- Leviticus, don't worry. So is everyone else in the room. 
Um, Leviticus is one of those books that if you decide to open your Bible, you pay Bible roulette and you say, like, I'm going to read from my Bible. And you start in Leviticus. Uh, it just affirms your desire to never read the Bible and you've never read it since. It's a really difficult book. And, and the fact of the matter is, even when they, we had five books of the Bible, even Moses's, uh, the, the Torah, it wasn't really a book written for the everyday person. It was written for the Levites, who were the priests. They were the temple servants. They were those who worked in and around that whole structure. And what it did for them was outline how all that should go, what would technically be referred to as the temple cult. Not cult in the way we think of the word, but just all the work, the entourage, the energy, the systems, the stand, sit, stand, sit, slice there, don't slice there, put your hand there. All of that, that's Leviticus. And it was incredibly important at one point in history. And in Leviticus chapter 1, uh, check this out. Leviticus chapter 1. There's something about multitasking in Leviticus chapter 1. What, what, where the book opens is it talks about the, the, the different types of offerings you could bring and put on the altar. Starting in verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second and point something out here. The sacrifices of the Old Testament Levitical system, those are all types and shadows that point us to Jesus. Okay, so an offering from the herd that is a male without blemish, who was the male without blemish who was sacrificed? as an offering for our sins? The answer is Jesus. That's who. So this is pointing us to Jesus. This isn't pointing us to multitasking. This is a type and shadow that goes straight to Christ's sacrifice for our salvation on the cross. And he's going to make this about the dangers of multitasking. We continue. Uh, A burnt offering... What's unique about a burnt offering is with the other offerings, you, uh, you have a party, and God gets a little, and you get a lot. And with a lot of the offerings, like there's a festival around it, there's a celebration around it. The burnt offering is a little bit mysterious in Old Testament scholarship because uh, the, the, it doesn't always respond to a specific like mistake or anything like that. The burnt offering is, is this general testament of dedication. It's this general statement of, I am yours, God, and you are mine. And listen to what God says there. When you're offering a burnt offering, I want a male without defect. Meaning, I don't want that one that like limps that you were going to give to your mother-in-law for her birthday. Like, I, I want the one that you were hoping would outlive you. I don't want the one that produces the best, that's the healthiest, that's the most gentle, that's the most kind, that, that, that always reproduces. I don't want that one. I want the one you treasure the most. In other words, if you're going to bring me a burnt offering, one more time, like, don't, don't half-ass it. Like, I want the full thing. I want the best part. I want the part that you hold on to the most. In chapter 2, it talks about the grain offering. In the grain offering, most typically what would happen is you would make a a flat, uh, yeastless piece of bread, and you would take that to the altar. Uh, When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. Now, you have to kind of jump into a pre-mechanized culture and appreciate the fact that if you were going to grind barley or, in some cases, wheat, you would have done that. Uh, It would have been work. You would have used your hands. You would have sweat. And thus you can appreciate, just as you understand and picture all of this, that the finest flower would have been the rarest flower. 
It'd be the part that you would just kind of set a little aside, set a little aside, set a little aside because my son's 18th birthday is coming up. Set a little aside, set a little aside because my daughter's about to get married. And God says, hey, if you're going to bring me a grain offering, I want the stuff in the back of the cupboard. I want the best stuff, the prized flower. Chapter 3. And again, the whole sacrificial system is types and shadows that points us to Jesus, who is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of it points to Jesus. In a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. So you see the point. And where this translates to our conversation today is, you know, around AD 30, when Jesus rose from the dead, and especially 40 years later when the temple was destroyed in AD 70-ish, You had a whole people, a whole movement, especially Jewish Christ followers, beginning to wonder, okay, so how do we follow God without a temple? And that's where much of the New Testament writing comes in, because from the Jewish perspective, you're asking without a temple. From a Jewish Christian perspective, you're asking for without a temple. And from a Christ follower perspective, you're going, wait a minute. So Jesus was the Lamb of God. So now that we don't have to do off... Right. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole temple points us to Jesus. Jesus is the temple. His body is the sacrifice. It all points to him. The reason why we don't have any of that is because all of that type and shadow was fulfilled in Christ. What do we do? And Paul says, hey, uh, here's the deal. It's everything. Like, I, I don't want burnt offerings. I don't want grain offerings. Now all of it is an offering. Like your work life your family life, you're on the clock, you're off the clock, you're like drive to work, you drive home from work, the what you do at 11 o'clock at night on Friday night, it's all an offering. All of it. See, like some of you, you, you make fun and I laugh with you about the fact that I don't like to be called pastor and I don't like to be called pastor, but, but here's why. Because the whole term, it assumes something about my life that's just as true as yours. See, the whole thing assumes that, that I do ministry, quote-unquote, and you do law. You build roads. You program computers. You build websites. You design things. You, it's, it's broken. Like what Paul says is it's all an offering. Whatever it is you do, it, it's all offering, which here's where the multitasking thing comes in. If that's true, and if God wants your finest flower... Does he also want your finest teaching? Does he want your finest email writing? Does, does, he, does he want your, your, your finest, like I buy and sell oil commodities? Does he want everything? A simple passage that you could have gone to, real simple. Slaves obey your masters, not giving them just you know eye service when they're looking but you know, serving them well when even when they're not looking, because your service is unto the Lord. You could, just a simple passage like that would suffice. But to put this in the context of multitasking, you have to understand that there are people who work at jobs where their boss demands that they do it. Doesn't matter if they if they're capable of giving their best or not. Their boss is demanding it. The job is demanding it. Hi, this is just a mess. 
Here's the way Paul says it in Colossians 3. Uh, See, I told you this is dangerous because it's stuff we know, but it's stuff to move away from all too easily. And whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you're at work or you're at home, on the clock, off the clock, crossing the logo, not crossing the logo, whatever you do, whether in word or deeds, you don't even have to like, you don't even have to be doing anything. You can just be talking, get paid for that. It's called being a pastor. Uh, I was thinking uh, with Parker this morning that, you know, in, in the Old Testament, the way that they would, they would ordain a priest was they would put blood on their right earlobe and their right thumb and their right big toe. And not only is that what dedication symbolizes for us today, but what they were doing there was saying that may everything you do as a priest, may everything you think and say, may everything your hands find to do, may everywhere you go be done in the name of God, dedicated to God. Now that, that's, that's the cry of Nathan and Jill's heart as they dedicate their son. Like, may everything he do be in glory to God. Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God all the while. And I would even say, even if you're in a situation where you got to multitask. And see, the point is this. Now, this is all law. There's no gospel here. And the way he's laid this out, I mean, well, multitasking makes it impossible for you to give your best. And God commands you to give your best. So now that you've run afoul of that and you've clearly come short of the mark and you haven't given your best because you've multitasked, what's the solution? Well, just give your best. Well, if multitasking is a sin, then don't I need a crucified and risen Savior? who forgives me of the sins of multitasking so that my relationship with God is not severed due to the the badness and, and evil of multitasking? You're just going to send me on my way telling me, oh, just make sure to do your best and try hard and, get, you know, and don't give in to the myth of multitasking without telling me about Jesus. There's nothing Christian about this sermon at all thus far, I, and I doubt we're going to get there multitasking is smart from a secular standpoint, so to speak. I think it's a moral imperative for those of us that follow Jesus. That we begin to analyze, wait wait a minute, does my use of multitasking actually prevent me from bringing my best? So it's a moral imperative. You're uh, you're multitasking. Uh, You're breaking a moral imperative now that uh, a new one just recently discovered by Adam Hushka all by himself. Rob Bell tells a story of a time where his his boys were young. Rob Bell tells a story. That should tell you something about Adam Hushka's theology. Each And they lived in Michigan, and they were on the beach in California, and there were these shell fragments everywhere, and their boys were picking them up one after another. And, of course, many of you can, I'm sure, remember moments. I had one of these with my sons this summer, and before long, every crevice in their mouth and in their pockets and in their hands are full, full of what are, like, not even complete shells but they're absolute treasures and they're just jammed. And as a family, they were doing that and they looked out in the water and about 20 yards out or 20 feet out was a starfish. And I don't understand why, but it was just floating on the surface of the water. And he said it was big. And the family just stood there kind of mesmerized. Like, wow, look at that thing. And then the youngest playing his role eventually went into a full on sprint into the water, got about waist deep and he stopped and he turned around 
And they're looking at him like, go, like, yeah, you don't need our, go, go get the thing. So he took off again, even took a few swimming strokes and wheeled himself around and came back. And then as the way only a six or seven year old boy could do, just stood there and just began to tear up, staring at his parents with water up to his waist. And they're like, go get it. What is your problem? And as, as Rob was walking towards him, he was able to mutter out of his mouth, I can't get it. My hands are full of shells. See, that's the tension. We know that we're compromised when we multitask. The problem is we have all these shells. And we don't know which one we let go of because we treasure all of them. And yet all the while, what what I think Leviticus begs us to see, what Paul begs us to see is going, God doesn't want your broken shells. He he wants your best. Um, The sacrifice that makes my relationship right with God is the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and His sacrifice on the cross. That's the sacrifice that all of the Levitical sacrifices points to. And you haven't told me anything about that. Less, if it means you give more. He'll take less, if it means you give more. God's not overwhelmed by volume. He's, he's, he's overwhelmed by quality. That's the tension. And uh, where does God's word say that? Where? Not a single passage says it. So how do we do this? I'd like to kind of back up uh, because I've been researching this for months and, and I will still stand by the thing that I said last week is still my best thing that I've learned and that is take the phone out of your back pocket even when you're giving a sermon. Um, but, but there's five other things that I picked up on that, that may be helpful to you. So tips on transitioning to single tasking. Number one, uh, it starts here. Chart your hours and budget your hours. Uh, what you'll find, if you're anything like me, is you leave work feeling like there's not enough time in the day to get things done. But when you actually start honestly putting on paper how you spend your time, what you'll realize is you're getting lots of things done that don't actually show up on the paper. And so it's why I've said for a long time uh, that I don't, I'm not really impressed by people who work lots of hours. I want to know how efficiently did you work. Congratulations, you feel good about yourself because you worked 75 hours. But if 40 of those or even 20 of those you were playing on your computer, then like take off the hero crown. Because at that point you're robbing your family is what you're doing. And so per- first point is, is what, what do you need to win at? What does the company need you to win at? Like, what are the hours? How do they want you to spend the hours? And do they line up? And quickly what happens is when you are tempted to go do something, you go, oh, yeah, I I can't do that. Because then when I get home this weekend, then when I get home tonight, uh, I'll be stressed out. And it'll be nobody's fault but my arm. So that's number one. Number two, uh, use your phone's do not disturb function. It has one. It works brilliantly. Trust me, I've been piloting this for six months. In fact, some of you remember when you worked in an office and there was a do not disturb button you could push on your actually office phone. Do I need a crucified and risen savior for any of these <clears throat> applications at this point? Do I need a crucified and risen savior for any of this? Answer, no. This isn't Christian. This is advice on how to make your life uh, more streamlined so that you can single task rather than multitask. Harvest, I just pushed that thing and left it on all the time. And so I wouldn't recommend that. But you have a do not disturb function. And here's the deal. When it's 9 o'clock and someone's calling you and your calendar says you should be working on this, guess what? You don't have to answer the phone call and you don't even know it. 
I, I put it on and I feel guilty about it. You can even program it so that certain people can call through it if you have to do that. But let's also remember that 20 years ago, kids couldn't call their parents 24-7. And they still lived. So there's a tension there. Uh, you're, do not disturb. Number three, and this was for me one, one of the, well, they're all real valuable, but uh, schedule when you check your email. Jim Collins, um, who's that other guy, Seth Godin, everybody, there's so many people that I read say that the most common mistake when it comes to productivity is the perpetually opened email inbox. Problem is, if you carry a smartphone in your back pocket, it's literally perpetually open. Uh, schedule when you check your email. The, the guy that I read, uh, that Dan fellow, he, he says, he literally has a voicemail that says, hey, I'm sorry I missed your call, but I check my voicemail and email every day from 11.30 to 12 p.m. and then again from 5 to 5.30, so I'll call you back then. I, it sounds a little pretentious to me. I don't do it yet. I'm not that busy. But I do schedule my email. And you know something? Uh, not only does the fact that I have to dedicate four or five hours a week to answer an email help me understand like wow that can take a lot of time i, I check mine from eleven thirty to 12 and 5 to five thirty every working day i have less e- in emails in my inbox and i'm less stressed and i spend less time looking at email than i otherwise would try it number four uh, you are so much more like jesus because of that i'm sure of minimizing how do we say minimize your active switches? Active switches are those switches that you're responsible for. When you get up and you don't need to, when you surf the internet and you don't need to, and you check your email, like work on that. The second part of that, kind of the, the one B of that, is work on your uh, passive switches. Passive switches are those things where you don't have control over. It's people knocking on your door. It's phone calls coming in. It's emails coming in. It's those things that you don't have control over, but you do. In fact, one of the best pieces of advice I received is, and, and this isn't a problem, but it, but it still helped me to tighten things up, is if someone's knocking on your door, every morning at 8.15 or someone's knocking on your door every week, then they, they probably need a meeting. So, so plan the meeting. Meet with the assistant every morning for 15 minutes. Meet with that person every week for an hour. Give them the time and say, here's going to be your time. But, but unless it's an emergency, like, leave me alone. The door's closed. And respect one another that way. Steve Jobs... Uh, in the, in, when he went back to Apple, he was walking the hallway and he was frustrated because he he'd created this great company and this great company wasn't doing great anymore. And then he had this epiphany moment and he called an emergency meeting. And in that meeting, uh, I'm told he, was lead, uh, he led these very heated kind of meetings. And there was lots of shouting, lots of anger, and lots of aggression. And finally, he went up to a whiteboard and he drew on the whiteboard a giant square. And then he divided that whiteboard into four quadrants. And across the top of it... He wrote personal and professional. And across the side, he wrote mobile and desktop. And what he said to them was, our problem is we sell 35 different types of computers. We can't do that anymore. So from now on, we sell four. Personal and professional in the mobile and desktop category. See, where I warned you that this stuff is hard is it's also going to require getting rid of some shells, some apps, some promises, some commitments. You're driven enough that you can't possibly do all the things that you've committed to doing. And so you get to decide, is what you bring to the altar going to be the finest flower or are you going to go with the alternative? My friend Fred said to me, 
when I was 21 years old and new to following Jesus and new to church and was aware of suddenly of the fact that suddenly everybody was inviting me to do things at the church and all these different areas and I was overwhelmed and he processed it with me over a couple meetings and finally he said, Adam, if I was Satan, you know what I would do? And I thought, it's not every day that I imagine myself as Satan, but what, do you, what would you do? And he said, I would give you 20 good ideas and I would take pleasure in the fact that you're not going to accomplish anything. I think that's the tension. Let me pray for you, God. No, not letting you pray for me. So do you think if you figured out how to not multitask and to single task, that that makes you, you know, more holy, more sanctified, closer to God, more Christ-like? Well, if that was what it means to be sanctified and Christ-like, why doesn't Scripture actually teach us this? Hmm? This is, I mean, the irony is, is that Satan has so filled the mind of Adam Hushka that he's not doing the one thing he's supposed to be doing, but he's become really good at doing a whole bunch of other stuff rather than preaching the Word, preaching Christ and making disciples. That's a problem. Don't you think? I do. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>